This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. This is News Talk 980 CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We're talking about consumer proposals versus credit counseling. We've talked a lot about consumer proposals and the benefits of them and how they work. But credit counseling, we don't always talk about. It is out there. It comes from a couple of different sources. Let's talk about the differences. Uh, Many people surprised to learn, and I am in this category, that a, a consumer proposal can be a better option for debt consolidation than traditional credit counseling. And I always think that credit counseling is a good place to start, but there's so many reasons why that may not be the case and not the best solution for you. Yeah, exactly right, Elaine. So I think in today's segment, you know, we're going to talk about some different, you know, factors and why there are differences between credit counseling and a consumer proposal. Um, Let's just fill in, you know, perhaps if there's some gaps in the audience, what are we actually talking about here about a credit counseling plan? Uh, Because if you sit down with a credit counselor and, you know, sometimes they're called a debt advisor or a not-for-profit credit counselor or a debt consultant, you know, essentially what they've got in their bag of tricks is what's called a debt management plan. And a debt management plan is where you agree to make payments to pay off your debt in full Um, over a five-year period, but usually you can negotiate an interest freeze. So if you went into a credit counselor and you said, you know, I owe $30,000 and they're charging me a bunch of interest and I just can't afford it, what they can typically do for you for some debts, not all, but some debts, is to negotiate an interest freeze and say, okay, if we're able to freeze all the interest and all the debts, you're going to pay back $30,000 plus some fees over a five-year period. So you'll make payments of probably $500 a month. So it's a repayment plan in full, but in general, with no interest. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about a credit counseling plan. Okay. And all of that sounds pretty good. Mm-hmm. On its own, by itself, it sounds good. But where it doesn't is when you start comparing it to how a consumer proposal works. Exactly. And that's the purpose of today. So, um, you know, first factor is how much of the debt do you have to pay back? right? So we were just explaining about a credit counseling plan that you're required to repay 100% of the principal. And ideally, there's some interest freeze, but there's definitely no interest freeze if a creditor doesn't agree to the plan, which not every creditor has to, but you know, a lot of them will agree to it. Or if it's a government debt, a government debt, you can never freeze the interest through a credit counseling plan. That's just going to continue to accumulate. And that would, could, could be your tax debt, yeah. could be student loans if you've done gone through that, gone that venue. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, important difference there. So in general, in a credit counseling plan, you're required to repay 100% of the debt. On a consumer proposal, very, very rare in a consumer proposal are you paying back 100%, almost never. For the vast majority of cases, you're paying back what you can afford, which is usually 20% of the debt, 30%, maybe 40 It's some subset, some portion of the debt to the extent that the most people that do a consumer proposal, they reduce their debt by 70%. So the $30,000 we were talking about, you know, if you're doing a credit counseling plan, you're paying back $30,000 dollar for dollar. Um, If you're doing a consumer proposal, you're probably paying back $10,000. A big difference. Your monthly payment of $500 is probably about $160. So you can imagine the space that creates in a family's budget. 
Absolutely. Now, there's also a, a big difference between, we talked about monthly payments, but the administration costs as well. And I think that's an important piece. Yeah. So it's as part of a consumer proposal, everything is set by government tariff and trustees are prohibited and we never would anyway, but we're prohibited from charging any fees that are outside of the consumer proposal. So if we figure out what you can afford is $166 a month on a $30,000 debt, the trustee gets paid out of that. So one way to look at it is your creditors are actually paying the cost of the trustee. You've decided what you can afford to pay back, and that a payment has to get split between the trustee and the creditors, with the creditors getting you know upwards of 80% of what you pay back and the trustee getting the balance. Now, it's really important too that as a trustee, any consumer proposal that I make, I have to do. Uh, I have to give my opinion that I believe it's in everyone's best interest, and I believe the person will be able to perform it. So, no trustee in Canada is allowed to put somebody on a payment plan where it's set up to fail. Meaning either that it doesn't, you know, provide for the necessities of the family each month, or it's just too much of an obligation. So we've got to make sure this is an affordable payment plan that the person, you know, can actually work into their budget. If you're on a credit counseling plan, the math again is relatively simple. It's what's your debt divided by 60, there's your monthly payment, and let's make all your other expenses fit that rather than the other way around. Let's understand all of your obligations, what's left for debt repayment, and that's how the trustee is going to structure the proposal. Now, are there other fees? I mean, can can that be hidden for uh fees not not with the uh, with the uh, with the trustee but with the debt counseling it, do those show up or can they show yeah, up yeah they, they definitely can so you know some of the more reputable credit counselors they'll be very upfront about you know here's our fee you know it's 40 or 50 dollars a month or something like that and it's reasonable some of the less reputable credit counselors yeah you might find very significant fees sometimes they're couched as you know credit rebuilding coaching or extra counseling sessions or you know different credit products that are sold to you during the, the procedure seating. Um, so definitely buyer beware. Um, if you're in a credit counseling plan, you're being offered additional options, products, or services. Probably those are things that are going to pad the profit line of the credit counselor, but they're not actually going to help you that much. And that's over and above your monthly payments over to pay above. off that debt. Yeah. And again, contrasting with the consumer proposal, nothing extra you ever pay. You don't pay a dollar to see the trustee the first time uh, or the second or the third time for that matter. It's when you file the consumer proposal, normally you make your first payment. So again, if it's that 166 we're talking about, you'll meet with a trustee a number of times. We'll review the whole situation. We'll get this great proposal filed and then you'll pay $166 when we sign the documents and you'll just keep paying each month thereafter. So no big upfront fees, nothing you need to save up to say, do now I can afford a proposal. Exactly. Okay. Um, so we talked about the administration costs, big difference in there. Mm -hmm. uh, the credit rating impact. Yeah, this was the biggest surprise for me, Elaine. I almost couldn't believe this when, when I you know did the research as of years ago now. Um, would you believe that in a credit counseling plan, when you're paying back everything you owe, but you're saving the interest, it hurts your credit the same as when you do a consumer proposal and you pay back what you can afford? So that is surprising. Right. Right? You, so the two scenarios we talked about, you're going to pay back $30,000, you're going to scrimp and save and put yourself through hardship for five years to pay back everything you owe. That's going to hit your credit report as an R7, kind of a technical term, but anyway, that's what it is, R7. Sure. Consumer proposal, where you paid probably $10,000, you had more room in your budget, maybe you were able to save money, now you've got a nest egg built up, it's going to be an R7. So exactly the same. So yeah. there's no benefit to your credit rating to go one way or, or the other. I mean, I mean, there's more advantage to doing the consumer proposal because mm -hmm. you're paying less money out, a smaller amount of the debt, and you're free and clear in a shorter period of time and less duress. 
Yeah. So that's one of the biggest reasons why we're doing these shows, Elaine, is there's certain things I think people just need to know. And I've had, I've never had someone in my office that when I've explained that to them and they've been on a credit counseling plan, they've been, you know, have I, had I known that fact, they've all said they would have done a consumer proposal instead. And many people switch at that point. Because you automatically think that it's the opposite, right? Yeah. One is going to be more advantageous than the other. You think there must be some benefit to me, you know, paying back everything I owe dollar for dollar exactly. as opposed to getting a discount in a proposal. But from a credit rating point of view, no difference. Now, morally, okay, I, I can buy it if you feel very proud that, you know, you were able to pay off every dollar that you owed. That's excellent. If you're able to afford it, go for it. But most people that I see, especially living in the lower mainland, it's hand to mouth, paycheck to paycheck, and every dollar towards debt repayment is precious. Absolutely. Because the, the thing is, w- with people when they're entering into a consumer proposal situation or a bankruptcy proposal, often the, often the, the factors that got them there aren't they were uh, careless or fraudulent mm-hmm. or whatever. It's just life yep. has been handed to them in such a way that it's costing them way more or much more than they thought mm-hmm. it would ever cost them. Whether it be, uh, we've talked about this, where illness has shown up in the family, taken one of the, the uh, money earners out as a result, and, and then everything just sort of falls in on itself. Yeah. And, you know, in, in general, most people, we all know we should have an emergency fund, you know, minimum three months, at least six months of expenses, you know, stocked away, but almost nobody has that. So yeah, we're exactly. all very financially precarious, just on this knife's edge. And when something breaks, a life event happens, you know, quite often people suddenly find themselves unable to honor their obligations. Let's talk about the creditor agreement and collection. How, how are they different there? And that's, this is a huge factor on a consumer proposal. So as we talked about in credit counseling, every creditor has to agree to the plan and they can opt out at any point. They can still sue you, call you and all that. Um, in a consumer proposal, all we need is 50% by dollar value, legally binding on everybody. So really important, again, generally your credit card companies, the MasterCard visas, they accept consumer proposals almost all the time because it's the best recovery ever. Um, and it, you know, compared to what a bankruptcy would be, um, if you've got a creditor, a personal creditor, or even the government for taxes who might be less willing to accept a consumer proposal, as long as they're not a majority of your debt, you can still deal with them in a consumer proposal. Whereas again, if it's credit counseling, you've got no ability to bind somebody who doesn't agree. So it's all based on everybody consensually agreeing that, yeah, this is the payments that we're going to split up, where a proposal, 50% by dollar value, legally binding, it cannot be reopened. It doesn't matter if someone's yelling or screaming. If they don't have 50%, they can't do anything. Yeah, it's a really important factor. And then the other big difference between the two are the qualifications. What allows you to do this work and what allows somebody else to do the work or to try to do the work. Right. So as as a licensed insolvency trustee, there's less than a thousand of us in Canada. It's a very coveted um, professional designation to have, and it takes quite a long time to qualify for it. So a trustee has a lot of power. We've got the power to use federal law to protect individuals, to restructure debts, to reduce amounts owing, to stop all the interest, just all these wonderful things that we can do. And we're regulated by the Office of the Superintendent of Bankruptcy, which is part of Industry Canada. So if you're dealing with a trustee and a consumer proposal and things don't go according to plan, you've got places you can go to get recourse. If you're dealing with a credit counselor, there's no national body. There's no set qualifications that, you know, says, you know, this is a qualified counselor versus not. Literally anybody could hang up a shingle in the next, you know, day, week, month, or whatever, start to call themselves a credit counselor, and then very minimal amounts of regulation would allow them to do debt management plans. So there's no multi-year you know, education requirements. There's no codes of ethics that are legally binding. It's very much the Wild West for a credit counselor. And, and the power, for lack of a better word, that a trustee has to 
put this in place for the person yep. uh, supersedes what, what a, a credit counseling person would be able to do. Oh, absolutely. Consumer proposal can never be done by anyone other than a licensed insolvency trustee. You're listening to Blair Manton with Sands & Associates. I'm Elaine Scollin. The show is called Dollars and Cents. Sands & Associates, experts in helping you get out of debt. For more information on any of the services we've talked about, go to the website, sands-trustee.com for more information. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services we talk about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation and to find an office near you. We've got Christine Conway online right now. She's a partner at Braun Financial Services, holds designations both as a certified financial planner and a certified health insurance specialist. Now, she practices in the Lower Mainland, super knowledgeable in a whole bunch of areas that will affect you regardless of where you're living. Uh, Christine specializes in debt and retirement and is the author of The Debt-Free Lifestyle, A Strategy for the Average Canadian. Christine, thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, Christine, why is it important to be debt-free or financially comfortable before retirement? Debt freedom before retirement is all about opportunity. Um, Your money can only go into one place at a time. So when we're able to reduce or eliminate debt early on, it frees up the resources for the things that people think about when they think retirement, and that's the travel and the vacation and the lifestyle that they've been wanting to enjoy. Um, Another point that's really important is when people go into retirement with the debt, and I put mortgages in that category as well, what they often don't realize is that they'll have to save more money when they're preparing for retirement in order to service that debt. So if they've taken care of their debt before they've retired, they can actually, depending on the circumstances, save a little bit less and still have some money left over for the fun stuff. Now, one of the interesting things about Christine is that back in 2008, she moved from Winnipeg to the Lower Mainland. And and not only is that a, a, is that a big physical move, but it's also a big sort of economic move, Christine. You've gone from, from Winnipeg, uh, where prices are one thing, and then you come to the Lower Mainland. It's a bit of a different, uh, different kettle of fish. How did you, how did you manage that uh, with you and your family? How did you, how did you come to terms with, the, with that big change? Absolutely. Well, once we got over the initial shock, because it was shocking, um, I began to realize, so during my job as a financial planner, uh, people living here were in the exact same situation. People were struggling to kind of get over the hurdle of how do I get into a house that I can not only comfortably afford, but also one that allows me to save for the future. So a lot of the book, The Debt-Free Lifestyle, is about just that. It's We're taking on too much debt, and when interest rates start to go up, that's really going to affect how much we have to pay, which would affect then how much we have left to spend on other things. So for us, it came down to something that I came up with that I've called the simple budget system. It takes 15 minutes to do a couple times a week, um, sorry, once every two weeks when you get paid, and essentially it's 
a simplified way of managing money, it helped us put a lot of money, um, almost $200,000 towards our debt in seven years. And that was mm. when we were earning pretty average salaries. Wow, that, that sounds pretty powerful. It is, yeah. And yeah. it's a lot of it is about when you look at debt, mortgages are usually taken right out of the equation. People mm-hmm. think, I have a mortgage, I'm going to have it forever. But the very way the mortgage is structured, it's called an amortized loan. And if you understand how principal and interest are blended on these loans, you can use that to your advantage in a huge way. Now, so th- that's one of the things I love talking to people about because they don't realize how much money they really have available to put to other things. Now, can you explain a little bit, uh, sort of real layman's terms for us, Christine, on, on how that works? Absolutely. So when you start a mortgage, so or when you refinance, typically you have 25 years and you've said, okay, I'm going to pay for this thing. I'm giving myself 25 years to do it. And the actual payment that you make for the first period of the mortgage, so early on, till roughly about halfway through, most of your payment is interest. And very, very little is actually paying down the debt. So very It's rather depressing when you look at your mortgage statement, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you see it. You yeah. actually see it when you're reading your statements. I paid so much to interest, yeah. and I paid just a little bit to principal. So what we try and do for clients is we come up with how much money do we have left available that we can apply to just the principal. And when you do that early on in the mortgage, you can substantially reduce your total interest costs, which reduces the total cost of your mortgage. Because when people think about their home, they think about the sticker price. So say I want to buy a $500,000 home. Uh, I'm thinking, hey, I'm paying $500,000. But over the period of 25 years, depending on where interest rates are, I can pay considerably more. Um, When the average interest rate is about 6%, you'll actually pay for that house twice, and the half will be going to interest. So there's a significant amount of things that people can do once they start to understand how these, these products are structured. And, and Christine, you were mentioning about interest rates a little bit, bit earlier, and I, I find it interesting with when I sit down with, with my clients and we actually start to do some sensitivity analysis. You know, so many folks that I see, they're, they're very extended on their mortgage. It's a variable rate mortgage. And, you know, we talk about, okay, if it's a 1% raise in interest rates, you know, that doesn't sound like much, but that could be a 50% increase in, in someone's mortgage payment or a 33% increase. You know, if we're talking 2 or 3% mortgage rates, any small increase can, can be big. So how do you encourage your, your clients to, to try to plan for that? Do they sit down and you know try to forecast different scenarios and they're still okay? You know, I love that you do that for your clients because it's something that we do too. Um, and I think it's so important because a dollar that's out of their pocket is a dollar that's not going to be going back into the economy, right? It's a dollar less that they can spend or save for something else. Um, but what we do is, um, well, in the book, I took what we saw from the end of 2009. So when interest rates dropped off, Uh, they've been kind of slowly and steadily declining from 2009 to now. So I had taken a scenario which reverses the trend. So it's based on historical interest rates, normal data, just reversed. So if we had a slow and steady increase of interest rates, and typically less than 1% every five years, because that's kind of how we saw these things go down. Um, But it's still, even, even in a very slowly rising interest rate scenario, payments can go up substantially. 
And that's what you had just just touched on. People seem to think that if they're paying down their mortgage regularly, that um, their payments are just always going to go down. And if you look at interest rate history, we've just seen declines for decades now. So really, a rising interest rate retirement is something that people are honestly, they're just not ready for, and they're not aware of what the impact will be on their actual day-to-day spending. Yeah, and I think it, it could be significant. Um, for, oh, for incredibly. See, and, yeah. and I'd like to stress, not large increases. If yep. we just have very, very small incremental increases, it all goes back down to the size of your debt. So if I have a million-dollar mortgage, and it's a 1% rate increase, that can it's a multiplier effect. Exactly. Right? So the size of debt that you carry really makes a difference. And that's why um, I'm, in, I'm in the camp that favors taking care of the problem early on, right away. Don't wait until interest rates rise to be stuck. Proactively deal with it now because it'll cost you more over the long term if you wait. And Christine, just switching gears a little bit, just to, to more more general, for the average person who's sitting there considering their, their finances, what type of goal setting should the average person kind of focus on? For sure. Um, if we're talking about debt, I think one of the most important things to be aware of is understanding how long it's going to take you to pay off your debt and what the total cost will be. Um, and that's a little bit what we talked about. It relates to mortgages, but also to every other type of consumer debt. Um, here's here's a tip. A lot of consumer debt, if you think of credit cards, lines of credit, they're all open-ended. So you don't ever see an end date on your statement. You have a payment date, but you don't have a date that says, okay, this is when this debt is going to be done. So we have to create that for ourselves so that we can then become debt-free. Otherwise, you kind of get on that hamster wheel, right? And you just go through the cycle over and over again. And these things will continue on for as long as you let them. So So you're saying if you've got a credit card debt and you don't have an end date for when that's going to be paid off, that's a goal you should be setting, right? Yes. I think that when people go through their individual goal-setting processes, if debt is one of their priorities, um, determining how long it'll take to pay down those debts, how much it'll cost them to do so, what the total cost is, including interest, and then with all that data, setting an end date so that they can make a commitment to themselves to say, okay, at this point in time, I'm going to be done with this debt, and then it's, it's off the table, and now I've got money to spend on something else. Now, I know for myself, uh, I would need some assistance to be able to do that. And I think that's where you would come in, right, Christine? Like a financial planner, you'd be able to assist me to figure out how to do that and how to do that properly. Yeah, I think that's where the industry comes in. So if you're looking for a financial planner, uh, things that you'd want to look for would be if they're a certified financial planning professional first. Uh, anyone in Canada right now could call themselves a financial planner. So you could if you'd like. You could oh, well. <laughs> a little sign on your door and that's say, scary. I'm a financial <laughs> It is. So yes. that's why when you're doing your diligence, you really want to check their qualifications. Um, so the Financial Planner Standards Council is what provides the certified financial planner designation. Anyone with those three letters after their name, it means not only have we gone through rigorous training, uh, we're required to do continuing education, and we also, there's a work experience requirement in there as well. So you can't just start practicing right away. You need to actually be actively involved in doing this. 
Um, I would also encourage people to check experience and specialization because financial planning is such a big category. Um, so I specialize in debt and retirement, which means this is what I do most of the time. Um, so I help people get retired. I help people pay off their debt, uh, those kinds of things. But someone else with the same designation as I have maybe focused on something completely different. So when you're meeting with someone for the first time and you're kind of preparing your list of questions, just make sure that you check what they're good at and what they do regularly enough to be up to date on. That's great information, Christine. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, helping you get out of debt. On the line is Bridget Casey. She's the president and CEO of Money After Graduation. It's a financial literacy website solely dedicated to helping college students and new grads pay off student debt, learn to budget, save money, invest for the future. Now get this, here's the stat. Since its inception back in January 2012, the site has grown to get over 3,000 visitors a day. Bridget, that's amazing. (laughs) Thank you. Boy, and what a great topic. I had so much fun going through your website, Money After Graduation. It's it's um, It's an issue for sure, the cost of education these days, and for young people to figure out how to get there and, the, and, and, and create all this money or get the student debt and, or uh, student loans in order to do this. So important, education, but boy, oh boy, the debt can be just so overwhelming. Yeah, it really is. I think the average graduate uh, finishing university or college with as much as $30,000 now. And that would just be for an undergrad degree, right? Yeah. Yeah, compared to going for uh, going for more after that. And I understand that that's the thing to do is just keep getting more degrees these <laughs> days. <laughs> you kind of have to. Right? <laughs> So let's let's talk to the student right now. Uh, or first off, what kind of um, what kind of the what are the common pitfalls that uh, that students, uh, recent students or recent grads, need to watch out for? It's borrowing too much student loans and taking on too much debt. I mean, when you're 18 or 19 and you're just starting university, you've probably never even earned 30 or $40,000 in a single year before. So it's hard to understand how large of a balance that really is when you're taking it on as debt. So just being aware that when you are signing on the dotted line for these amounts of ten dollars or $15,000 or more per year of your degree when you graduate, that is real money that you have to pay back. And if it's close to or more than your salary, it's going to take you a number of years to get the balance down to zero. So, so Bridget, I remember when I was going through through university, you know, whatever the government would give you on your student loan, everyone took the maximum. It sounds like what you're saying is, you know, that conventional wisdom is not, is not wise. Um, you know, really be careful. Maybe don't take the maximum. Think about, you know, if you could get by on less to minimize the debt after graduation. Is that, that what you're saying? 
Yeah, that would be great. The alternative is to take the maximum and just store what you don't need in a savings account, because really the government is going to give you more in loans than you actually need for your tuition and fees because they account for living expenses and additional costs like textbooks and computers. But if you can find even a small part-time job during the weekends or in the summers, you won't need to rely on this debt to carry you through university. And then you can just keep it in a savings account and return it to the government when you graduate. It sounds like such a, um, I don't know if if hard is the right word, but uh, if I want this degree, if this is the thing that I want to do more than anything, and this is what it's going to cost me, uh, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get, you know, achieve that end. Uh, but the cost involved is so enormous. It, you must you must run into all kinds of people who have uh, huge uh, challenges when it comes to uh, comes to school debt. Yeah, I think a lot of people borrow under the guise that student loan debt is always good debt, which mm-hmm. isn't necessarily true if it doesn't lead to a degree that earns you a higher income than it's really bad debt. But we have a tendency to turn a blind eye to the cost of borrowing and the amount we borrow. And again, it's just that expectation that we'll be able to pay it off with ease. But you really can't predict where you will be in two or four or six years and what the job market will be like and what your income will be like. Yeah, and Bridget, we did a, a study as Sands and Associates a few years ago. We went on campus and we surveyed students and we asked them, you know, well, how much do you expect to earn six months after graduation, a year after, two years after, and how quickly do you think you'll pay down your debt? And no surprise to you, and it wasn't a surprise to us, was just the incredible optimism of, of students. You know, <laughs> ju- you know, just about everybody thought they'll be well above the median income in BC, you know, within six months to a year, and just about everybody thought they'd have their debts paid off within a few years, where the research, and Bridget, you probably have more current numbers, but I thought it's, you know, around 10 years or so is is the average for a student loan to get cleared these days. Yeah, and the reason for that is because that's the term on student loans. I think there's just a large disconnect between how much opportunity there really is in the job market and how much you can ask for as an entry-level employee. And then, again, you don't have those skills like salary negotiation, which is a really easy, well, it's a really painful 20-minute conversation, but it can add two or three or $5,000 to your starting pay. But when you're coming out of university, you don't know how to do that. And the other thing grads don't consider is how long it actually takes to find a job. Maybe you will get hired at a fifty or $60,000 a year job right out of university, but it might, it might take you six or nine months to actually find that job. Exactly. And then once you, even if you get that great job, and let's say it's in the lower mainland, the cost of living, uh, you know, rarely do, does everybody sort of figure in the cost of living, especially yeah, young absolutely. people. absolutely. <laughs> right? That's why I say if you're borrowing forty or $50,000, you might think, oh, well, I'll pay it back, no problem, because I'm going to earn $50,000 as soon as I graduate. But you're losing a lot of money to income taxes, living expenses, rents are sky high. It costs at least four or $500 a month for groceries. If you own a car, it's something else. Like Most young people really only have a few hundred dollars, if that, to put towards their debt when they've graduated, and it will take years at that pace to pay off a forty or $50,000 balance. 
Now, now Bridget, we've talked a lot about um, student loans, you know, the government student loans, but um, definitely a pet peeve of, of mine is, you know, credit card companies when they go on campus for Frost Week with, you know, the giveaways and getting everyone to sign up for a credit card. Um, you know, to me, that that can be a, a big issue when, when folks graduate is, you know, they're, they're counseled, hey, get this credit card, it'll help you build your credit rating. Um, you know, my view is, hey, you can build your credit rating pretty quick. You don't necessarily need to get the card on campus uh, for whatever the gifts are there. Oftentimes it hooks, you know, students on credit pretty early in life. Uh, I'm curious your view. Would you think, you know, students are doing a smart thing by getting the credit card when it's offered on campus or should they delay? Uh, I don't really like the campus credit cards because I don't think they give good offers. Like you said, it's usually a cheap gift like a t-shirt or a mug for signing up for an annual fee card that has no rewards. But if they go to their bank and they can get a no annual fee card that has some kind of travel rewards or cash back with a very low limit, say like $500 or $1,000 to start, then that's fine. Because I do believe in building credit when you're young. Your student loans will also build credit. And the reason I'm not as concerned with credit card debt is even though the interest rates are very high, I mean, you're going to pay 20% on uh, your in interest on your credit card debt. But if your credit card only has a $1,000 limit, I mean, it sucks, but it's not really going to hurt you financially the same way borrowing tens of thousand dollars of government or personal loans to go to school will. Bridget, have you got some other good uh, tips for for folks just either getting into school or coming out of school and how they can uh, sort of do a better job than, let's say, somebody who's not been listening to you? (laughs) Well, I'm really focused on increasing your income. I always work two, sometimes three jobs while I was in university. And I try to keep most of those jobs on campus, like tutoring or being one of those people that monitors the computer labs. So one of the best things you can do when you're a student is just find a really easy part-time job to boost your income. Because even if you're subsisting on student loans to pay your tuition and your rent, you can use this extra money coming in for fun, like your beer money for Friday night. So I think the more you get used to working hard, balancing your time, earning extra income and managing your finances, that's really what's going to serve you well throughout university and also after you graduate. Bridget, such great advice. Uh, Listen, in wrapping up, I just want to encourage everyone to take a look at your website, moneyaftergraduation.com. You've got a blog, you've got a fabulous e-course that I started to take a look at earlier, and a YouTube channel uh, where you actually talk people through some things. It's just such a great website, and you're such, I just love the fact that you've taken on this topic. Thank you so much for joining us. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. Get a financial fresh start by calling 1 800 661 3030 for a free consultation to find an office near you. With Blair right now, we're talking about uh, myths around personal bankruptcies and 
I know it's kind of a favorite topic of yours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so much misinformation that's out there. Whether it's you know you're trying to self-diagnose, you're going on Google and you're finding U.S. bankruptcy law and things that you know mm. it, it applies here, or you know friends and family members, even if they seem very financially sophisticated, unless you've really sat in the eye of the storm, faced it yourself, or sat down with a real professional, quite often there's more misinformation than fact. So I think we're going to surprise some folks with the things we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, and I think it's a really good point just to say again uh, the difference between. Between the American rules mm-hmm. and the Canadian rules. Oh yeah, so so completely different and two things just to take away in the American rules, nothing you can do about student loans, nothing you can do about income taxes. In the Canadian rules, absolutely both of those can be solved. That's great. All right, so let's say um, I'm needing some assistance with debt and uh, I come and see you and start the proposal process or the discussion about either bankruptcy or the proposal process. Mm-hmm. Uh, who, who else finds out about that? So that's a huge concern for people, along with hey, what's going to happen to my credit. It's also who's going to know about this? Is yeah. my employer going to know or my you know friends going to know, family members, creditors, all of that? Um, the answer is it's a very short list of people that need to know, and it is based on that need-to-know basis. So starting with the employer, there's no reason a trustee would ever have to speak to an individual's employer unless... The individual has already been sued and their wages were getting taken. So if you don't pay a debt and someone takes you to court or if it's the government, they skip court, they can just go straight to your employer and they can take up to 30 to 50% of your wages. That's called a garnishee. And that's what sends people running through the door to a trustee because a trustee is the only person that can stop it. So typically the only reason that I need to speak to an employer is to stop that garnishee. I need to send them, fax their HR department saying, we're now in control. This garnishee has no force of effect. Please start giving this person back their full wages. And you can imagine how happy the individuals are that we can stop that typically the day they file for bankruptcy. So the information to the employer isn't actually coming from you guys at that point. They already know about it. Exactly. Somebody's come to them. Oh yeah. The the embarrassing part is having the garnishy put on, not having the garnishy taken off. Typically, you know, that that's a positive thing. And quite often it's the employer's HR department that will refer them to us. So, you know, they'll say, yeah, we've had a number of people who've had garnishies in the past. They've done a proposal or they've done a bankruptcy. Everything is sorted out, but there's no reason an employer needs to know anything about the details unless there's a garnishment. Even in a broader sense than that, who needs to know about the bankruptcy? You know, some people are under the impression there's a notice in the newspaper. Hmm. Almost never. So we do thousands of cases every year. I think personally, one of mine last year had a notice in the newspaper. The only reason for that is if someone files for bankruptcy and they have very significant assets, and I'm not talking about, you know, a house with some equity. I'm talking about, you know, a $50,000 investment account or things like that. Uh, The government requires us to put a one-day notice in the newspaper saying, okay, there's going to be a meeting to consider this estate. Happens, like I said, once a year in thousands of estates. In almost every case, there's no notice in the newspaper. There's nothing searchable online. It's very, very straightforward, a private proceeding between you, the people you owe money to, and then obviously my regulator, the superintendent of bankruptcy, and myself, the trustee, were informed. Okay. But again, it's only the newspaper. That's the only place that that information goes. If it has to go there. If it has to go at all. Almost never. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about um, how long does the bankruptcy process take? Mm -hmm. Uh, I know there's a couple of terms for it, the discharge or or the exit time involved. What, What is that? So in general, much shorter than people think. So most of the time when people come into my office, they're thinking, hey, bankruptcy is going to take six, seven years or 10 years or or whatever. The vast majority of people, 80% of people that file for bankruptcy, they're finished in nine months. 
That's incredible. Less than a year, nine months. The other folks who, and basically the vast majority of folks, that means that you're low income. And if you're low income, it means you're earning less than roughly $2,000 a month. Bankruptcy is only based on your monthly income. So you could owe a million dollars or you could owe $10,000. It's all based on what are you earning now. And if you're considered low income, bankruptcy is nine months. If you're not considered low income, bankruptcy lasts a year longer than that. So 21 months, still inside of two years. So it could be the worst debt burden you could imagine, hundreds of thousands of dollars in you know, horrible situations. You can be discharged in nine to 21 months if it's your first time ever in bankruptcy. Okay. How does it impact my credit card, my uh, credit rating? Well, anytime you don't pay your debts back in full, your credit's going to take a hit. Now, we see kind of two types of people when they come to us. There are folks that have perfect credit because they've just kept every minimum payment up to date, but they're never going to pay all the debt off um, because you know there's just too much debt that's out there. So their credit might look good and it's going to take a hit. We also see folks where the credit's already bad because they've missed payments for a while and you know they're already being sued and things like that. So wherever you're at, bankruptcy essentially is going to reset your credit. So when you finish your bankruptcy, it's going to show that you've been in bankruptcy. And for the next six years, if somebody pulls a credit report, they're going to see that a bankruptcy has been filed. doesn't mean they're not going to give you credit for six years. And most of the time, people after a bankruptcy are actually a much better credit risk than they were before. Because coming out of a bankruptcy, they owe nobody anything. They've just come through a very serious legal proceeding nobody takes lightly. So the first person that treats them with respect and makes them a client, typically they're going to get a client for life and the banks know this. So we've seen people two to three years after bankruptcy getting credit cards with no crazy risk premiums, getting mortgages with no crazy risk premiums, even though it's noted the fact that you've dealt with the issues is positive. Don't plan that the day after you're discharged from bankruptcy, the day after the nine or 21 months, you'll start to get offers of credit. And that's not a good thing anyway. No. But typically, if you do the right things, two to three years is a reasonable horizon to rebuild your credit. So it will say that I was bankrupt, that I had to file, but then it will also start to show the improvements that I've made or the yeah. or the, the credit that I've been able to accumulate since that point. Exactly. So the bankruptcy is going to drop off eventually. And what we encourage you to do as part of the financial counseling sessions is to get a secured credit card. That's where you start off. You give a deposit. You get a card with a lower limit. Every time you use that card, it puts a positive story on your credit. After one or two years, 12 or 24 positive stories on your credit, that bankruptcy is going to be less and less relevant. It's really going to matter. As you said, Elaine, what have you done since then? Right. And you're going to walk me through that if I come to you with this issue. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing that I think is really important for folks to realize that you're, you you just don't get all this, uh, the, the bankruptcy done, and then you're sort of on your own. Yeah. You can access, you get counseling assistance, and you get um, coaching, for lack of a yeah. better word, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, so when someone sits down with us to file for bankruptcy, you know, I've had people walk into the office thinking they're going to sign documents, they're going to walk out and all the debt's gone. I'm like, no, it's, it's not quite like that. Um, you know, some people have used the car wash where it's not that you're you know, just scrubbing off all the dirt on the outside, all the debt and leaving the inside unchanged. We really care about the person internally. So part of the bankruptcy is we're going to be together a minimum of nine months. We're going to meet at least twice for counseling. And as much as you reasonably need our help, we're going to do our best for you. So we're going to tell you, here's all the great things to do to rebuild your credit. We're going to talk to you about the pitfalls. And if you can believe it, the number one reason people run into trouble when they're rebuilding their credit and get denied mortgages is unpaid cell phone bills. Hmm. So they take everything seriously, but sometimes they forget to pay Fido or Rogers or whatever, and that can tank you more than anything else. So we'll give you all those pitfalls. Interesting. Now, um, uh, 
the other piece of it, of course, is that fear, mm-hmm. um, not the not the fear of what other people will think, but the fear of losing absolutely everything. Yeah. And and you you say that's a myth as well. Absolutely a myth. Just about everybody when they file for bankruptcy retains all of their assets. And I'll explain why. So, you know, in theory, when you file for bankruptcy, you're surrendering your assets to your creditors. But there's an interesting interplay of laws. And the province of BC has created certain exemptions that say no matter what, even if you were sued and no bankruptcy or whatever, someone's coming to take your stuff. There's a base level of assets that everyone in the province is entitled to retain. That includes your household furniture. Household furniture worth up to $4,000 at a garage sale value which is almost every case. I've never seen more than $4,000 at a garage sale. So no one's going to come and take your furniture. Your clothing and anything you need for a medical condition, that's exempt to an unlimited amount. No one's going to come and take anything out of your closets, take your CPAP machine, anything like that, you're going to be fine. Your vehicle, you're not allowed to have, you know, the new Maserati or whatever, but you're allowed to have a reasonable vehicle worth up to $5,000. If you file for bankruptcy, nothing's going to happen to that huge one, and this only changed in 2009. Before this, it was the most unjust situation in Canada, in my opinion, is RRSPs. Mm. RRSPs are now fully protected. You can never be forced to cash in your RRSPs, even if you have way more debts than what your RRSPs are worth. You don't have to cash them in. Previous to to 2009, you did have to cash them in. So the government forced you to compromise your retirement. No more. The only way your RRSPs are at risk is if you take them out yourself. Yeah, and I think, let's just focus on that point for just a second. We've talked about that issue before that sometimes when folks get in a pickle over debt, that's the first thing they do is they turn to that savings that they've been working so hard on to start paying off. And and you say that's just not a good idea. It's generally the worst possible thing you can do. And it's just based on misinformation. So quite often, the person that they're taking advice from, it might be a collection agent or it might Mm. be somebody at the bank who's, you know, not a real advisor for them. It's if anybody knows the facts and with eyes wide open to Besides, hey, I want to compromise my retirement to pay off my debts. Okay, fine, and do that. Every person that I've sat down with when I've explained the rules, they was just saying, well, why didn't anybody tell me this? Why is this exactly. not more publicized? And all I can say is we're doing what we can here, but there are certainly some vested interests people would have in making sure individuals don't know that their RSPs are safe. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, th- another myth, um, it, that bankruptcy affects your ability to travel, uh, whether it be uh, just uh, uh, nationwide or yep. out of the country with a passport. Yeah, so very simply, no impact on passport, no impact on citizenship, no test, are you debt-free before you can leave or enter this country? We get that that question a lot, and I think, you know, mm-hmm. in some countries around the world, it might be that way. Um, and in Vancouver, you know, in Canada, we're a nation of immigrants, so some people have, you know, certain baggage from their own countries, and yeah, bankruptcy is very intrusive in some societies, and it's very difficult. Canada's not like that. You can move, you can travel, do whatever. You have certain responsibilities, but they're all reasonable. And nobody, and that information doesn't get passed along to wherever you happen to be going. Like it doesn't right. follow you. That's right. No database to my knowledge. It's really important information mm-hmm. to know. So we talked about uh, the fear of losing everything, which I think is a big one that folks go, oh my gosh, I can't believe that that's going to happen. And it doesn't, which is great. Mm-hmm. And the time involved, can we just go back to that for one one more time? Because I think yeah. it's really important, the, the length of time that it takes uh, to be done with a bankruptcy. Yeah, so you're going to fit into one of two categories. If you need to file a bankruptcy, you'll either fit into a low income category, which again, roughly under $2,000 a month take home income for a single person. If that's your situation, bankruptcy lasts for nine months. 
If that's not your situation, meaning you're earning above that amount, it's a year difference. It's 21 months. Okay. Far off the six or seven years most people think. Right, exactly. Now, where did that even come from, that that <laughs> huge long length of time, right? right. That's like a, an old fishtail or something, exactly. isn't it? Yep. Excellent. If any of this information, if you want any more of it, uh, Sands & Associates, Blair Manton, He's the guy to talk to, Sands & Associates. You can call them. Very easy. They've got offices all over the Lower Mainland, as well as in the interior and on Vancouver Island. 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation and to find an office near you. Vancouver's News. Vancouver's Talk. This is News Talk 980. CKNW. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.